Hey, Brad. Yes. Do you know how we fund the program going off track? I know exactly how we fund it. There's one source of income for us, and that is patreon.com slash going off track, where our loving patrons give us money and we give them bonuses. Patreon, stop making up words. (laughs) It's a great place. We do a weekly Thursday night fireside chat. Brad takes all the embarrassing things I say in podcasts that he doesn't put into podcasts and puts it on the Patreon. Funny pictures of Brad in the 90s, usually naked or wearing a wristband. Please sign up. Brad, what's the address? Patreon.com slash going off track. My brother texted me the other day, you know, because my niece is a young burgeoning drummer. And he asked, Travis Barker or Taylor Hawkins? With no context, just that. I'll take Taylor. And, yeah, and I actually really started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, like, who do I actually like and appreciate more? And quickly, you know, like, my instinct is to go for Taylor because... He's like my kind of drummer, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like that dude, like he hits the way I hit. He plays, you know, he's obviously into fucking 70s rock and like, right. you know, does this cool stuff. But, you know, as far as the great scale of drummers and what they've accomplished, I I mean, Travis Barker might be a more like vital and important kind of player, you know? Because, um, I mean, he literally like, you know, Blink-182 does not sound like that. And they don't make the kind of jump <laughs> they make without Travis Barker. I mean, oh, it's yeah, true. Yeah. You yeah. Let, their old drummer was great, but he's one of those guys, once you hit the really fast parts, you can hear that he's, you know, maybe catching up, maybe not. Like, And and then all of a sudden, Travis Barker is just like an absolute machine. I mean, people forget. Oh, he's a beast. He's the a beast. drums on those Vandals records and then the stuff on the Blink. And then... All the things he did with, um, you know, like transplants and now the crossover stuff he's doing with newer artists and a little more elect. Like, as much as I love Taylor, like, I do think Travis Barker might end up being like, you know, the more vital and important drummer. It's, it's, it's hard to tell. Right. But Taylor's the guy that I want to jam with. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I just yeah. like. If I'm just like stoned with a guitar, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to jam with Travis Barker. No. I'd run out of the room. I'd be so annoyed. <laughs> yeah. No, I'd but have to be on like, yeah. Taylor's going to make anything that I do sound really good. Right. Like, without a doubt. And Travis, yeah. I can't keep up with him. I, I don't know where to start. So, yeah, we've talked about this before. I do the types of drugs that put me into a Taylor Hawkins world. <laughs> if I did different drugs, maybe Travis. <laughs> I need to be a little more up. I've never been into the cocaina, you know? The kids still do cocaine, or do they have different ways to get themselves all worked up? Are they just uh, all bumping Adderall and shit these no, days? They're doing the coke. They're still it's doing cheap the coke? now. Yeah, it's cheap now. How do you know? Well, it was like, whatever, <laughs> 10 years ago when I was still DJing. Oh, I wasn't, I didn't use it. The evening, huh? I didn't use it, but it seemed like every other fucking guy who was too old to be using it was so yeah yeah did you ever have a coke nail (laughs) no i never really i didn't i mean i've done a lot of drugs and coke was not really you know i think i was one of those guys that was up enough already that like yeah yeah i didn't need coke yeah i was the same i was like 
I was always like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'm f- I don't need to be worked up anymore. And then by the time, like I was actually even somewhat interested, I was like, yeah, I'm too old to start doing coke. Yeah. Like <laughs> if you're past like 27 and you do coke for the first time, that's an issue there. That's a yeah. whole nother yeah. set of problems. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Some weird early midlife crisis yes. or something. Yeah. Like you don't want that. I think, a cherry red convertibles in your future if you take that on um but anyway speaking of midlife <laughs> crisis spoke and to drummers my, <laughs> yeah and drummers i i mean great drummers like listen scotty is a very intimidating guy to be your drum tech because he's like better than you oh really he's one of those people where you like yeah. look over and you're like oh yeah like you you could do all this you know, you could do right. everything I'm doing. You're fine. So the greatest story I have about Scotty as a, you know, obviously we spent a lot of years on the road together. Good friends. I love them a lot. Um, but something even uh, took Scotty up a notch for me, which was, I think it was the first tour that he was being a drum tech for us. I don't even remember it took me years to accept the fact that I like needed a drum tech. I, uh, I denied it as long as I could. Like people were like, you should probably get one. I'm like, no. (laughs) And then it got kind of strange after a while because I had this like ritual before the show where I had to go out, retighten my cymbal stands, give my snare a little once over, like just hit everything at least once, make sure it's cool before I jump up there. And it started to get kind of weird because I'd jump up there. People would be like, yeah, what's yeah. up, dude? You're not supposed like, to do oh, that. Yeah, just, just fucking around <laughs> in my shit for like 30 seconds. And then I'm going to walk off again. And and it kind of got weird. And then we started to kind of have like, you know, daytime offers for press and shit where like I actually literally just couldn't be there anymore. So that's when I was like, you know, I had met Scotty through touring with Alkaline Trio. And I knew he wasn't uh, touring with them at the time. And we, you know, we asked him to come out. And like literally from the first day, I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. Because he was like so spot on. I mean, the heads were perfect after a couple days, like just tuned exactly. The, like I've never just been able to like walk up behind a kit and just be like, all right, good to go. Like I don't even have to check. Everything's perfect. And I know it's going to be. and. One night we're playing and uh, I look, you know, I I hear something in the middle of the song and I'm like, oh, that sounds funky. And I look down and the snares on the bottom of my snare drum had popped off. So, you know, I didn't break a head, but I was basically like hitting a tom for my snare. It sounded crazy, you know? Yeah. Um, And I'm like, oh, that's not good. Um, You know, the song just started. So there's not much we can do. I'll get through like the three minutes of this song and then we'll swap it out. Uh, Not swap out the snares, like swap out the actual drum, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is my line of thinking, thinking there's no plan B. And then before I know it, I'm like, what the fuck? And I look down and there's Scotty under my legs. (laughs) Like during a show, I'm talking like a big show, lots of people on my drum riser under my legs, fucking taking a snare off. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, whoa, like, it, like, I didn't even know how he got in there. I kind of had the bail on my hi-hat foot, you know, which doesn't really matter for me. And I'm keeping the song going. And now I'm just like laughing 
I'm like, wow, there's no way like he's going to pull this off. And literally before I know it, like maybe 45 seconds later, I'm still hidden. And all of a sudden the snare's back on. Uh, Scotty's done. He did it in like 90 seconds. That's amazing. Under me and swapped out the entire snare. And I'm like, oh my God, this is an absolute legend. I'd hire (laughs) him to work on my home. I'd hire him to work at my deli. You know, like it doesn't matter. Like this guy knows how to work. It just knows how to get it done. You know, that was an, an incredible piece of drum teching that night. I'm still impressed as you can yeah, see. I'm impressed. It's like changing your oil while you're driving down the road, man. <coughs> and it's the absolute opposite of our co-host Ian Perkins, who was a very good tech in his own way, but very, very messy, very messy. <laughs> He had these work cases that were just like filled with, it was like if you took a junk drawer and just put it into a work box, right. but he somehow knew where everything was uh, and kind of the, uh, the exact opposite of the way Scotty is. But I thought it was interesting um, getting into, you know, the different styles of how people tour and how that kind of reflects their personality. You know, I've seen that over and over again when I tour, there's just kind of, it's almost like if you know somebody well enough, you kind of know exactly how they're going to tour before you even get out there, you know? Nice. Yeah. What was your vibe? Uh, I used to explode on a hotel room, pretty much. Like, I just I just spread out, like, immediately and rapidly. Okay. Um, but somehow, like, I had, like, my shit, like, in such a way, like, I used to, you know, I, bu- I always had the right bag and like I had like one of those bathroom toiletry kits so that I could I could fold it up just as fast. Like uh, I could come and go very quickly. But I definitely like I would look around and kind of laugh because I was like, man, I really took over this room like instantly. <laughs> just spread out. Yeah. But anyway, Scotty just, you know, I wanted to speak to him because he's got one of those really cool pass through music. Sweet the Leg Johnny was a great band. Um, he was you know, in Chicago working at the Fireside Bowl and, you know, while the trio came up and all this like great music in Chicago in the 90s and then toured with all these great bands, toured with me. And now, you know, like accepted, you know, the stuff with stadium production where U2 shows up and says this really, really like broad understanding of touring and music and people. And, and he's really just one of the sweetest guys I know. So I wanted to have him on. And, uh, Thanks to the I man, Ian John John Perkins, <laughs> for always being just I don't know, pretty much the best person I know. Uh, and I think I think after this, Ian might need his own episode, huh? It sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, I think Ian's so. gonna need his own episode. Please chime in and tell us if you'd like Ian Perkins to have his own episode. I got some questions for that guy. So yeah, I thought this was a blast, and thanks to Scotty and Ian for getting into it with us. All right, let's check let's it out. Listen. It's going on Welcome, Scotty. Thank you so much for coming on. Ian, thank you so much for being the co-host with the co-most. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. Mr. Majestic. I hope someone gets that. It's from the beginning of a Gangstar record. I even texted it to Ian, hoping so. <laughs> I thought that was, I thought it was Killers. <laughs> oh, different Majestic. <laughs> was it Mr. No, that's Mr. Brightside. Oh, yeah. 
big hit. It's big a big hit. hit. I heard that's a good good song. Um, <laughs> Scotty, yes. how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, uh, waiting for this. Uh, you know, waiting for the world to go back to some kind of normal. Yeah, that's right. So, so walk me through uh, what life's been like for you a little bit the last the last year. How you been filling up your days, and uh, what have you generally been up to? Well, we bought a house um, five years ago now, almost. It'll be five years in September, and it was a new house. So, uh, you know, it was it was nice and and clean and easy to move into when things were real crazy. Um, but you know, I, I'm usually pretty busy and I haven't had a lot of time to do stuff. So this right. year I did, uh, that's last summer I put in two patios in the backyard. Um, <laughs> I, I painted and insulated and paneled the garage. Nice. Uh, I painted the downstairs of the house. Uh, I painted my parents' house. <laughs> um, I've just been like anything I can do to like keep the TV off. Yeah. Right, you know, because I won't let I won't let the TV go on until like after dinner. Oh, so so we just uh, and and Beck's been working, so you know I take care of the uh, the the shopping once a week and cleaning the house and doing more cooking and yeah, it's been you know I love the TV not going on until dinner. That is a that is you missing out. Move you missing out. All this daytime TV, I'm telling you. Ian, you can't be awake for much of it, right? Let me tell you about, I, I, I get up about one-ish, 12 <laughs> if it's early. Have There's some goldfish. All this stuff. There's <laughs> all this stuff going on during the day on TV that you don't even know about. Like, what are we talking? Like, like supermarket sweep still on, that kind of thing? <laughs> no, there's just a lot of people sitting around desks talking about stuff that went on in the morning that you got to catch up with. There's a lot of stuff going on. You can't be out there building patios and <laughs> painting houses until you know what's going on. It's pretty much always a law and order on. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stuff got you got to catch up with from the morning that you've missed out on. <laughs> Scotty, are you the type like like me where like if you even ingest the news in the morning, it just like kicks off like your day in the total wrong direction? No, I I kind of have to ingest news in the morning. Oh, I've, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, I've got that um, Apple News app, so I kind of get up in the morning and and I usually get up a little bit earlier than than Beck, and uh, you know I let let the dog out and give him his breakfast, and then. I usually uh, kind of read that the news in the morning like a like it was a newspaper. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So you need, I, I need you it. Need, you need yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, does it actually make you feel better about things to have this no, knowledge? No, absolutely not. Not even. <laughs> 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 oh my god! So, Scotty, I'm I'm watching some uh, some sweep the leg videos, and I noticed that you were a. Uh, I didn't realize you were a wristband wearer. There's wristbands? I probably did have some wristbands. Because <laughs> Brad was a longtime wristband wearer in the 90s. Wouldn't play music without <laughs> him. He had like special ones and they're now sitting in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Where did you find <laughs> these videos? You are on uh, something called YouTube. Uh, it's a website and uh, they post videos of different things. Now, they had a cool video from, I think, like, Oh six, when there was that that little run of shows, uh, or maybe even just one show, um, 
that sweet played did you you played that show i couldn't tell the guitar player was doing some crazy antics where the drummer was hidden 2006 we were done by then yeah hmm. i wonder what that was yeah. but anyway huh. tribute I, band <laughs> <laughs> so i wanted to get back scotty like you know you have a long rich history that uh <laughs> Obviously, the, some of the listeners of this program don't know about. And I, I mean, even I'm curious because, like, you know, we toured together so long and we've known each other a long time. But, you know, you sort of sometimes miss years and miss elements of people's lives when you just come in too late, you know? Um, yeah, for sure. So I kind of forget, like, you know, what, what was what was the background? What was the, the Anna household? Like, what was the... Uh, situation that kind of to to led you you know going down the path of you know drums and music like what, what was going on when you were a kid there when i was a kid so mom put us in uh piano lessons uh i was seven when i started piano lessons i guess okay. i did that for a couple years and i didn't you know i should have done it more <laughs> right. and tried to enjoy it but i didn't and then uh it in fourth grade, so nine years old, the uh, the orchestra comes to the class and shows some instruments. And I went home and I told my mom I wanted to play the cello. Okay. Cello. Well, the cello is very expensive. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and the cello is uh, I mean, probably pretty excruciating to, uh, to parents' ears oh, yeah. with a beginner playing. <laughs> so uh, they said, why don't you wait for a year and see what band has to offer? Okay. So I waited for a year and then uh, – yeah, I told him I wanted to play the drums, so I got a little oh. a practice pad and a, yeah. uh, my, how, my... How close to being a cellist you were. <laughs> so close to being a cellist. <laughs> um, and uh, my principal gave me uh, his snare drum from when he was growing up. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. Mr. Cool. It was, a, it was like a... Stop it. The guy wood. who gave you your first drum was named Mr. Cool. Mr. Cool. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? I was like, oh, man, this story. Straight from Mr. This cool. This story already. Like, goodness. <laughs> you can call me Mr. Cool. <laughs> so he gave you a snare, and then what were you? Did you do like a lot of like uh, marching band or yeah, anything I did. like that? Yeah, I did all that shit. I did um, concert band, you know. Through, through junior high and, and okay. high school. And then in high school, uh, you know, we wanted to, you wanted to play in the jazz band if you're a big, you know, nerd like right, I was. Right, and yeah. in order to do that, you had to do the pep band and you had to do the marching band. And then I was in the <laughs> orchestra. Okay. Yeah, the whole thing. So you were full on. So you wore those, uh, you know, those like military style, like marching uniforms that those kids Dude, wear? So ours were, we had the drummers at different ones. Ours were really bad. So <laughs> <laughs> the school colors were, were like red, white, and blue, obviously. Like of most course. high schools, I think. Yeah. And uh, so Ian, the... just just so you know, those are the um, the colors of the U.S. flag. Yeah, not just the union. I've uh, never seen those colors before. <laughs> 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 but yeah, we had um, a nice kind of Australian-style cowboy hat with, you know, flipped up on one no, side. really? It was black, hard, like, it was like hard plastic, but then like kind of covered in velvet. Oh goodness! And then this puffy, sh- puffy shirt, <laughs> like it was horrible. And then you could just wear black jeans, which you know. Who signed off on this? Mister Cool did not sign off. <laughs> Mister Cool. Did not sign off. 
ensuring you could only date people in the band with you. There's none of that going on. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So when when you were in like uh, high school, when did, you know, um, kind of like the alternative culture, you know, catch your attention? When did you start getting into alternative music and, and interest in like playing drums and bands and stuff? Yeah, that would have been like halfway through because I went in to high school and through junior high, like full on, you know, Motley Crue, Duff Leppard, ACDC, yeah. which I still love all that stuff, sure. obviously. All but, all I mean, Van Halen was like my my thing. But um, yeah, it was probably 16 or so when you started getting more into, you know, skateboarding and, you know, more... Uh, I didn't get real into punk rock right away. I was more into the the new wave scene, like a lot of New Order and and Depeche Mode and all that. Right, kind of right. And then the college rock REM. And what what led you, uh, you know, down that road? Did you have like influences in the house or just like friends from school? Like, yeah, just friends from school, really. And um, when did you guys? When did you form your first band? When when did that start? I was in my first year of college, my first and I only went to college for about a year and a half. And that was and, in uh, Chicago? No, I was in um, central Illinois. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there was a band on there that the drummer had quit or something like that. So I started playing with them and played with them for about a year. And we just did like, you know, stuff around the Midwest, and stuff on campus. And we had a, we had a van. So, uh, we got out a little bit, but not much farther than like Iowa and Ohio. What was that band called? It was called Catherine's horse. <laughs> That's a pretty good name. That's so perfectly. <laughs> so there's Midwest, this like early nineties. So, awesome. <laughs> so there's this like, yeah, the, the, the story was that Catherine the great, you know, no man could satisfy her. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's right. She was a horse fucker. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> whoa. whoa. Yeah, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Listen. It's not it's history, dude. It's not me. It's history. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Let's go back here. Which Catherine are we talking about? Catherine the Great. Oh. She this is this is noted. She had sex with animals? No, I this is this oh. is what I was told when I joined the band when I asked why is a band called Catherine's Horse? <laughs> I was like, shit, I should have paid more attention. <laughs> History that, was interesting. <laughs> it is. It's very interesting. <laughs> That's awesome. So what uh so you did that little stint in college and what what um was your impetus for like getting down to Chicago? Uh I I decided to go to Columbia uh and took some classes there for a semester, I guess. Okay. And um and, uh, yeah, so that, that left that band and then just, you know, we started, started bands with friends that I grew up with and, and friends from like the Chicago area. Now, like what, what kind of kid were you? Were you, um, you know, pretty mellow, got along with everyone or at the same time you started getting into this music where you really like kind of defining your individualism and, and trying to, you know, see yourself out of that town and stuff a little. Uh, I definitely was more of a get along with everybody type kid. Yeah. Yeah. And still, still am I. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> doesn't really, it doesn't really matter what you're into as long as you're not a dick. You know? Right. <laughs> as long as no one's making fun of new order, you were fine. 
<laughs> what were you studying at university? This and that. I literally just bounced from, I, I started with like some just general education courses. And then I took some like, uh, like education classes, like to become a teacher. Both my folks were teachers. And I kind of thought that was the only thing I could do. Yeah. What did and, they say though when you drop, when you're like, I want to be in <laughs> Catherine's horse <laughs> and not actually, be a teacher. <laughs> I actually called my dad and and uh, and told him that I was I didn't want to stay in school anymore. And I called him in time for him to still get all, get all his money back because I was fortunate enough to have parents that were willing to pay for my college. So oh, I just saved him a bunch of money, I guess. So, like, listen, Dad, no more education, but I got out before the next bill. Yeah, you can buy a boat. Cool, get get out of there. Yeah, yeah. Get out. Yeah. One last thing: go deliver something on a bike, pal. <laughs> so Did when that. you when you made it down to Chicago, what was like the, you know, how did you start making your way and and getting into the scene there? Um, what year was that too? By the way, uh, so that would have been like ninety two. Okay. Yeah, somewhere around 92, 93. Um, so uh, Brian Peterson, who booked the Fireside Bowl, right? Um, that it wasn't started yet, but he and I, he and I grew up together. Um, oh, great! He was a couple years older than me, but we we've known each other since uh, I think I was probably like nine. He was eleven. And just for the uh, people listening, can you tell them where you grew up? I grew up in Elgin, Illinois, which is about. 35 miles outside of downtown Chicago. It's close to where Wayne Campbell's from, right? Uh, <laughs> is it close to no Aurora? Idea. It is close to Aurora. Yeah, okay. I thought Wayne and Garth were your name. Yeah, my mom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My mom grew up in Aurora, actually. <laughs> okay, cool. So you uh, so you reconnected with Brian Peterson down in Chicago? Yeah, and uh, I was just kind of working odd jobs and playing in, in just random you know, little bands. And, uh, when he started doing the fireside, uh, I was bartending at a couple places. Um, and so I started kind of helping out, helping out there with, you know, just pouring drinks and yeah, drinking at the other half. <laughs> Where was your head at in those days? Like, like, you know, you were sort of moving away from school, just playing in bands, yeah. working at bars. Like what was, what was the plan or, or was, was it the no plan? There was plan? zero, there was zero plan. It was yeah. buried. It was buried in that bottle. We, we had a good time right. <laughs> all the time. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, we were starting to, uh, you know, the idea was to get a band. So you go out and tour. Yeah. Right. Like tour more sure. than just, you know, Midwest. And uh, I mean, what was going on in like Chicago and that in those years was, uh, starting to kick up a lot of, a lot of interesting bands. Like what was, what was the scene like in the, in the early nineties? Pretty, pretty. It was hopping. Yeah. 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 Mid nineties, especially, but I mean, at Fireside, we were, we were having shows, you know, sometimes six nights a week. Yeah. That's crazy. Was it all Brian? Brian was booking all of those or were there a number of people? No, there was another guy named Dave Eves at the beginning. Uh huh. Um, and, uh, the two of them kind of tag teamed it and then, uh, Dave moved on and then, you know, a couple other people came in and Brian was always, you know, there, but, uh, a couple other people, he always has <clears throat> helping out a little bit. So did you, did you kind of get connected in the scene and have these jobs like before you got in sweep the leg, Johnny? Like, was that sort of your, 
connection to those guys in that band? Yeah, I actually, Steve and I, who played uh, sax and sang and sweep, he and I went to summer camp together. Oh, no shit. Yeah, yeah. And they went to Notre Dame. So we had always stayed in touch. And uh, I used to go to Notre Dame just to kind of, you know, visit for the weekend. And um, they were in a couple different bands then. And then when they moved to Chicago uh, after they graduated, because they actually graduated from college, um, the bass player and drummer left. And there was a guy named Matt Alisea and I, and Matt was like this, there's a band from back in this time called Tommy Rod that was just mm. like, if, if you can find any Tommy Rod stuff, it's just amazing. Uh, oh. The first drummer of Alkaline Trio was actually the drummer of Tommy Rod. But oh, okay. Um, so Matt and I were in a band um, and that band wasn't really doing much. And so we joined Sweep. And what was like, you know, Sweep, now, especially in retrospect, I know like during that time, there was some bands around that were kind of kicking around some of these ideas a little, you know, maybe like your cap and jazz is or something like that. Yeah. But, you know, what what was the actual like mentality going into Sweep and starting that band? Because the, the music is just so unique and it still sits in a very unique place that I wonder like, really like what were you guys listening to and and what was the you know the intention of 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 it when you started i think i think the funny thing was that we all really listened to different things we had there was definitely like an overlap you know but but i liked a little bit heavier and faster stuff and you know everybody kind of had their own their own thing and then to incorporate the, the saxophone into it and everything, yeah. you know, which he played kind of more like a guitar. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just, and then when we wrote songs, we all, we all wrote together um, in the, in the space. And uh, sometimes we just couldn't end the song. So they just turned out to be 13 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> there was like no rules to it. You didn't have any interest in, in keeping it no. like, like pop it, oriented it, at all. Right. It, Definitely not. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there were other bands. There were other bands there that just. It wasn't like you were just the only ones doing it. Mm-hmm. There were other bands. Like growing up in England, I always looked over and like saw like Chicago was this or LA was that, DC was this. Right. But was Chicago? Was Chicago? There were other bands doing that that you just fit in with. Yeah, just like the whole kind of math rock experimental. You know, who were the like, bands? Like, who yeah. were the bands? Who were the Chicago uh, bands? Tell us. I mean, the biggest one that people would probably know of would be Shellac. Oh, you know, right. Steve, Steve Albini's band. Yeah. Um, but like you mentioned, uh, Benny, the Captain Jazz, there's a band called Psychic Cato. Um, uh, you know, there's just, there's a handful of them, but we, we didn't really play with bands that sounded like us. Actually, it was like, you'd play with, like, the, the lineups would just be very uh, diverse. So right. we used to play, we used to play with Alkaline Trio like all the time. It wasn't a second thought because we were just, we were just buds. So it's just it didn't matter. What, like everybody was kind of into everything and, and very um, accepting. Right. Yeah. Fireside Dogs had just had to, even though it was crazy and and disgusting at times, it yeah. was uh, it just had a really good like I hate to use the word vibe. I really do. But it did. It had a use good vibe it, to use it. it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can even, I can even confer. I have a little side story about Fireside. Like, you know, yeah, um, you've been there, right? 
Only once, and in a very okay. strange context. I was touring with my band, The Low End Theory, in mm-hmm. probably 98 or something. And it was the old bass player from Poison the Well had booked our tour. We right. were at the Fireside Bowl, and we took a very long... I forget where we were coming from, but it was many, you know, like a 10-hour drive or something to the Fireside. We show up, of course, we're stoked. We're like, wow, the Fireside Bowl, this is great. And they go, uh... We don't know who you are. Oh no! And we're like, wait, what? <laughs> like, look right here. You're you're on the schedule. You're on the tour <laughs> manifest. You know, and like they're like, yeah, we've never heard of you. And uh, so the person who had booked the tour just threw it on the uh, schedule there without actually booking <laughs> the show. Um, so you know, our bass player calls on the payphone and jaws out this booking guy. I wouldn't even call him a booking agent. You know, he's just a dude. And yeah. um. We're like, oh, fuck. Like, what happens now? We just literally pissed away, like, you know, $200 in gas getting here. Like, I don't even know. And, you know, speaking of vibe, they were like, uh, there's a show tonight. You guys can play. Like, Get the fuck out of here. And it turned out, I'm sure you know the band, Scotty. It was a band called Leonard's Innards. Oh, yeah. Which was like a pretty well-known Chicago punk band, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So we, so it was, ended up being a Leonard's Innards show. They not only let us play. They gave us uh, gave us some beer, um, gave us some money off the door, you know, whole thing. Like it started as like the worst day and ended up a very, very fine day. So you I got a lot of that. Yeah. So I do really I mean, you know, there's not a lot of places you'd walk into that would do that. So the idea that there was some pretty awesome vibe at that place makes sense, you know? Yeah. We actually got lucky like that with um, with Jawbox in Florida one time. Oh, really? I was a huge Jawbox fan. And we had called the uh, we had called the promoter. It was it was, a, it was in Pensacola, and we had called the promoter just to check on everything. He's like, "I got good news and bad news. Good news is the show's all you know confirmed and everything." And you know, this is like two days before the show, and you're still making sure it's confirmed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but um, he's like, "Bad news is Jawbox is playing like two blocks away." Oh, he's like, "But I'm going to try and get you on the bill." Oh shit. So I was like, all right, you know, so, um, we end up going to this kid's house like the day before the show, his parents' house, his mom makes us dinner. We're going to crash it on the floor and the phone rings in the house. Cause it's way before cell phones. And, uh, it's Kim Coletta from Jawbox oh, shit. asking to speak to me. And she says, so you guys want to play on the, on the show with us? And we're like, yeah, it'd be amazing. And, uh, so they let us play. They gave us a hundred bucks out of their pocket wow. and they gave us all their green room beer because they had enough in their van already. Look at that. Sweet so cool. Oh. <laughs> oh man. I'm going to spin a jaw box record extra tonight. They're so good. <laughs> and you know, Zach, I'm sure, you know, Zach Barack is the drummer. Yeah. Who I'm, I'm, I'm sure we both have stolen many things from. Uh, he randomly, uh, uh, started working at a bookstore in Jersey city. And I slightly recognized him, but, but like, didn't put it together. One night I had a bit of a situation at the restaurant next door and I had to rush into the bookstore and blow up their bathroom. Oh, um, oh a situation. <laughs> oh, a, sh- yeah. a situation. <laughs> and, you know, I, it was one of those times I walked in. I was kind of like, I, maybe it was just my body language or something, but Zach looks at me and he kind of just gives me like the, 
closes his eyes very softly and gives me the nod. You know, he's like, oh, I see what's happening here. Go ahead. You know, and I'm even sitting there in the bathroom like, you know what? That dude was cool. Like, like nice. You know, like uh, he got it. He got it. Good for him. And then I put it together like a couple weeks later. I'm like, holy shit. You're the drummer from Jawbox. It also makes sense why an old touring person was empathetic towards a, exactly. a situation. Right? <laughs> he's been there, I'm sure. Sure he's been there. Oh, man. We've so, all been there. We've all been there. Yeah, I've been there a lot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so when you were like, when you were in the middle of this, Scotty, like, you know, when this was all going on in those years with, because this is right, like early trio, uh, what, Slapstick, like early Lawrence Arms, like all these great bands coming out of Chicago, this great venue that people from all over the country are getting to. I know there was like a thriving underground scene and houses and stuff. Did, you know, did you realize at the time it, it was special or only really in hindsight? Yeah, I think we did. Cause the, the bands that were, the bands were moving on, you know, and getting bigger, like, you know, Jimmy world, for example, Right. You know, I remember seeing there them there a couple of times. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're they're huge. And just the way that it, it ran itself and and you know, we were we were touring at the time, so we'd see other venues around the country. Mm. And and it's we definitely knew it was a special spot. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. What was the band? that would play in those days that you wouldn't miss <laughs> that I wouldn't miss. Yeah. Like if they were playing anywhere in Chicago, you were, there. I thought you meant the, the band. Oh no, I got it completely wrong. <laughs> I was the opposite way. I was like, wow, who's the band, <laughs> who's the band? that just you fucking You would never sucked. go fucking yeah. see <laughs> if your life depended on it. All right. Well, let's we're give you this question. Yeah. Nope, I was like, going. wow. Yeah. Well, you would be uh, If it was just like, like a show in Chicago, um, but not a Chicago band. It was definitely Rocket from the Crypt. Oh yeah, that's right. Like Rocket from the Crypt in Chicago was just—it was an event. <laughs> and what about Ian's question? The band you would never go see. <laughs> that would never. I'm not going to answer that. Yeah. Donuts, donuts. <laughs> Here's back to the diplomatic nice guy again. There you um, go. See. Have you seen any resurgence in Sweep the Leg Johnny activities since Cobra Kai came out? <laughs> no. Um, we don't even have a social media account. <laughs> so no. But um, we are re-releasing a, an album. Uh, which, so, which record are you putting out? The, it was the third release, Solstokatsu. Awesome. Yeah. And so we'll be able um, to find you digitally and things after this? Yeah, yeah, that's the main reason we're doing it. Uh, so it'll be on iTunes and, and uh, Spotify, and, and uh, we're going to re-release the vinyl. That's awesome. Have you all yeah. talked about maybe doing a show or anything? No, no. no. Um, we're kind of all over the world right now. John, the bass player, is in Tijuana. Oh, wow. uh, Steve is in China. Whoa. And Chris and I are here in Chicago still. Uh, so I would imagine that at least <laughs> one member from every math rock band has to live in Asia eventually. Right. Is that's part of the criteria. He's been there for, right? <laughs> yeah, he's been there for a while now. So you're working at Fireside in those years. Can you remember a night, couple nights, a particular instance that was just like, whoa, what is going on here? 
Like, what's the craziest night at Fireside Bowl in those years? The wackiest thing that happened. Uh, I mean, there was always dumb fights. Right. Um, but <laughs> we we were very self-policed. Like, people, people kind of looked out for the place because it was so – it was so – not legit that like if the cops came there too often, you know, it, it definitely yeah. would have, would have right, ended right, except right. we did. There were a couple guys that patrolled the neighborhood that were, um, <laughs> they were huge peg boy fans and they oh, were really? into a bunch of, yeah. <laughs> and they were into a, into a decent amount of punk rock. Oh, and okay. so they'd come in in uniform, wow. um, every now and then. And like, we got to know them, you know, but the kids would, the kids would still freak out. A couple of cop the cops boy fans. I love that. <laughs> the cops yeah. are going to shut it down. Yeah. But there was, uh, there was some car robberies that were happening and, and vans getting broken into and, uh, and things like that and yeah. gear getting stolen. And the cops that were Pegboy fans actually were the ones that uh, kind of set up a whole little operation and caught the people doing it. So, Oh, really? What was that? Yeah. They like actually did like a sting? Yeah, yeah, they did like they they like got up on the roof and watched watched the street for a while until like some really yeah that wow. really happens in real life with it like really a box happens. of donuts and just a yeah. binoculars only in Chicago yeah wow. I could just, I'm just imagining two Chicago cops up Couple on a hot roof dogs. listening to Field of Darkness and just to- like <laughs> noshing out like I guess they have a pizza you know. Like in my couple hot dogs. Oh, like dogs, right? Cops probably eat dogs in Chicago, right? They can eat what they want. They're on the roof doing (laughs) doing the good work. So they actually did they set up like a a dummy van? I don't recall, to be honest with you, but they did they did set up something where they caught the guys that were doing it. Wow. So that's pretty awesome that you had that. That neighborhood was that neighborhood was rough and tumble in those years. It's not anymore. Is it part of the areas that got gentrified and stuff? It's kind of on that. It's kind of on that border. It's it's a bit north of like Logan Square, um, you know, Wicker Park, uh, but it's it's just kind of in its own zone, right? Right. So it's not fully it's not fully gentrified and like Wicker Park and well, Logan Square still got its areas, but back then it was you know, it, was, it was thick. I heard about a legendary bartender you used to work with, Hammer or Hamir. Yeah, Hamir. What was that guy's vibe? He's uh, <laughs> he was a gambling addict. Oh, um, he was when I started working there. He didn't work there. He was just like the neighborhood guy. Oh, okay. Like he just, but he was a raging alcoholic. Okay. Like raging to the point where he would come into the fireside. And he would have me make him a drink, which was essentially like, so in a Long Island iced tea, for example, you have vodka, gin, rum, tequila, triple sec, and then you throw in some like sweet and sour and Coke. Right. So he would essentially put like vodka, gin, rum, tequila, and Jägermeister (laughs) into like, you know, like a 12 ounce solo cup. Uh Uh-huh. Like... You know, no ice, about 75, 80% full. Oy. And then splash a Coke. Just the death. And just drink it like it was a glass of water. Oh and then God. go and then go in the ice room where he had a hidden bottle of Southern Comfort that he just pounded on. Okay. So then he, his doctor told me he was going to die if he kept drinking. So he'd stopped. 
Um, and then he started working there. Oh, and he okay. still works there. No shit, really? He still works there. Yeah. Wow. So he was just like a neighborhood dude who yeah, used to just get bombed there and then everyone became friends with him. He started working there. Yeah, he used to get bombed at every neighborhood on the on the corner wow. or every corner neighborhood. Did you ever rename bar. his drink? Like <clears throat> instead of a Long Island was it like a Gary Indiana iced tea? <laughs> no. Gary <laughs> Indiana. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, he his uh the owner of Fireside. Yeah, his name is Jim, and his dad owned it before him. And so oh, Jim really? kind of grew up going to the neighborhood and just knew Hammer from – Yeah, He was just a neighborhood guy. When yeah. did it actually convert from like a bowling alley? I think shows started – it was like 94. Oh, okay. So it was actually like a functioning bowling alley like right before, right until then? Yeah, I think it was a, I think it was a, a failing bowling alley. Right. Yeah. As your game, can you bowl? I bet you can bowl. It's definitely. Right. You're good. You you are good. I know it. I haven't gone in a long time. I went the last time I went a couple of times when we were living in England. And it's expensive to bowl in England. Man. Right. Everything's expensive in England. Well, don't they have those sure. little pins over there? <laughs> little pins. It's funny bowling, isn't it? It's not real bowling. No. No, they real. get real bowling. Oh, you have yeah. real bowling? Yeah. Huh. We invented it, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, you've invented, like, all the sports that we poached, essentially. Except for lacrosse. <laughs> I think that one's ours. <laughs> but, all right, so speaking of which, the fact that everyone from the Midwest can bowl and probably has their own custom ball. Um, I, stumbled I, upon, I, st- <laughs> I stumbled upon an article, okay, getting into this interview. This is uh, Business Insider Magazine, ironically from June 18, and the title is Common Misconceptions About the Midwest. Eight things that Coasties get wrong. <laughs> I'd never heard myself called a Coastie before. Coastie? Yeah. Coastie? You'd never heard this either? No. Oh, I thought it was like a ham and cheese Coastie, you know? like. Um, <laughs> so, all right, so here are the eight things, okay? Some of them are ridiculous. But this is straight from Business Insider Magazine. A periodical of note. All right. First, everyone is polite. Let's do true or false for the common misconceptions about the Midwest. Everyone is polite. False. False. Uh, Not everyone. Not everyone. But a lot. But based on your experience, is there a higher percentage of politeness than, say, New Jersey? In Minnesota, especially. Oh, they're the nicest in the Midwest? Oh, definitely. Oh, I didn't know that. That makes sense, actually. All right. Uh, No diversity. I didn't like this one. That makes no sense. We're going to skip that one because there is that. It just depends where you go, right? Um, This one was weird. It said, it's okay to make fun of them. An example being, in quotes, uh, campy wedding cakes, bait shop gunfights, and ranch dressing (laughs) themed gender reveal parties. Sure. I don't even. I don't even understand that. What is what? Like, what are Ranch you talking dressing about? Themed gender reveal parties. I'm not. Wow. I actually, yeah. Now that I read that back, I don't think you should use ranch dressing while doing a gender reveal. That's actually that's dirty. Yeah. Um. Messy. Okay. Yeah. Messy. Don't like it. Okay. Everyone is a farmer. False. False. No one is cultured. False. False. I know, it's a terrible article. Who wrote this? Who wrote this? Hunting and fishing are the main pastimes. 
Uh, <laughs> no, false. But close. Depends on your on your circle. Sure. All right. Corn, they definitely exist. Corn is everywhere. True. True. <laughs> <laughs> the band or the food? <laughs> Both, probably. No. I bet there's parts of Illinois that have a big like corn ICP kind of population. I'd imagine. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Once you get out west, there. <laughs> All right. And it's a flyover region. I'd never even heard that before. False. So let's just go ahead and say, fuck this Business Cider magazine article. <laughs> it was just baiting us into some strange argument. We've got like the second busiest airport in the country. Yeah, I didn't like this. Can't fly over. Yeah, Brad, we might cut <laughs> this. No, uh, so, but all that being said, what are some observations on Coasties that you've had through the years? You've toured with plenty. Are we mean? Are we that much different than people from the Midwest? I don't think so. I know you have a fascination with people from the Midwest. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I am. But yeah. I don't think that, um, I don't think you're any different. Do you mean fascination by I like the movie Fargo? No, I just know you. <laughs> I do know that. But I know that you, uh, that you enjoy the Midwest, like, uh, our, our, maybe our, our simpleness, um, our niceties. Yeah, I don't think it's simpleness because unlike this Business Insider article, I am not like a bigot towards people from the Midwest. Is this <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't like, like I, I've met you know uh, some very rich, cultured, educated, interesting, creative, like everything, everything you get anywhere else in the Midwest. I think the thing that's different is just this general difference in how you treat people, uh, a general difference in how you communicate, like where someone from where Ian's from or someone where I'm from, when you start to like someone, you make fun of them more, you know, like you just break their balls, like you get inside, you got to like take them down a peg in some weird way. And yeah, I think Chicago's got that same that same thing. Yeah, maybe the city, but but I feel yeah. like you know the general person in the Midwest. It's just this like kind of less combative way to be. You know, like a little more, a little more open, a little less rushed, a little less intense. And I do find it like soothing to be around. And I and I love the accent. When you said roof before, I I, <laughs> I was giddy with excitement. Because I love the way it sounds. <laughs> Say it again. Roof. 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 Get on the roof. That's great. But I am semi-obsessed. Um, but I want to talk about something I know you love. Yeah, I know you're a, a big movie fan, especially from certain eras. I want to go ahead and let's rank the top five Chicago movies in history. Oh, man. All right. So I have a bunch written out here, but these are the ones that I need on my top five. And you tell me if I'm wrong. Now I got, we, I'm sorry, go ahead. Are we, are they based in Chicago or filmed in Chicago? Uh, based, based. And I, I'm also going to include Chicago adjacent, like home alone. Yeah. Or something yeah. like that. Okay? Suburbs. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I got this on my list and you tell me what I'm missing. I got Ferris Bueller's day off. Mm-hmm. The fugitive. Yep. Uh, high fidelity. Yep. Home alone. Yep. 
And for me, this number five slot is somewhere between Adventures in Babysitting Ooh, and Untouchables. One. Yeah. Ooh. See, I'd pull High Fidelity off personally. Really? Yeah. Is that because the actual story itself is English? And they no, just I, just, I, just wasn't, I just wasn't a fan of it. Really? Yeah. I should probably watch it again. Too whiny? I love I love Cusack normally <laughs> too. I just I don't know. Maybe maybe I watched it at a bad time. I it's but uh, it was filmed right down the street from where we were living at the time. Oh really? Yeah, it was filmed on, on Milwaukee Avenue, like down the street from where Reckless Records is now. But like right on uh, uh, Milwaukee and Wood. Okay. Were they, did I take your parking or what? What? Tell us the real reason. There's a reason. <laughs> That's why they stole your spot. Closed on the street. <laughs> All right. So but, if um, we're taking high fidelity off. What are we putting on? Can we go? Can we go a little campy and, and do red heat? Oh, Ooh, good, good one. Good. <laughs> and I'd like to bring up. Listen, we're still missing out of this list. I haven't brought up backdraft. Running Great. scared. Road to Perdition, Ooh, yeah. the Blues Brothers, yeah. Ooh, and also it. Rookie of the Year. Yeah. I mean, that's like the only Cubs movie there is, you know? Uncle Buck. Uncle Buck. Oh, we even Uncle got eight Buck. men out. I mean, you can pretty much just go John Hughes and, and <laughs> yeah, the John Hughes top take, your, take your pick. You can't lose the Untouchables, though. You can't lose that one, dude. Yeah, Untouchables is great. That's a classic film. Well, you could lose Homo. I'd, I'd swap Home Alone for, for Uncle Buck. So we got Fugitive, Ferris Bueller's, Uncle Buck, No Home Alone, No High Fidelity, Untouchables, and what? Adventure. While you were sleeping. <laughs> While you were sleeping. <laughs> that is a good one. It's crazy. This is a lot of movies. There's like... Besides for L.A. and New York, Chicago's got to take the cake for this this many films. Now we got all the uh, there's all the TV shows there now. Oh well, like Chicago Fire, Med, and yeah, Cops. PD. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My uh, mother-in-law likes those programs. Oh, does she? She I've does. Never, I've never watched any. I try not to watch them. Um, well, that's good. Anything we're missing here? Films? No. No, we got them all. Those were the ones, would have been the ones I rattled off. Cool. So the Dark Knights are great, but that's oh, not. Oh yeah. You know, but that's not Chicago. Yeah. But they were were they filmed there? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. Yeah. It makes more sense. Yeah, I guess that's why Heinz Ward was in it. It's all uh, Lore Wacker. Huh. That's crazy. I didn't know that. Now you were telling me something before that was super interesting. So. You know, we're going to jump a little bit. Obviously, you're not in Sweep the Leg Johnny anymore, and obviously you do not work the Fireside Bowl anymore. Uh, <laughs> and there were a, a lot of years in between that you, uh, you know, hit the road, like, seriously. And so what, what was that transition for you from, like, playing uh, and really trying to do your own bands, and how did it transition to you from, you know, getting out on the road and, and just, like, making your way a, a different way. Yeah. So sweep was, we toured a lot, um, for about five years. Like we were on tour constantly, but we weren't making any money. Right. Um, we were, we were going to Europe, uh, quite often. Um, 
and in the van around the States constantly. But we all had to work like three jobs when we got home so we could pay our rent right. so we could go back out on the road. Yeah, and that yeah. was getting old. The fireside was uh, was kind of under this umbrella of, of going away um, because the park was expanding that's mm-hmm. down the street from there. So uh, kind of started getting other jobs and, and wasn't really into it and wasn't touring with sweep anymore. And, um, yeah, uh, the first band that I worked for after, after that period, after sweep broke up was, was trio. Right. Yeah. Cause they had been, I mean, they had been making money and, and having a crew for, for a while at that point for quite a few years. What year was that? Uh, I've been like 2000, Seven. Oh, okay. So yeah, they were pretty established by them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's when you jumped on with them, and it was just like a hey, like Scotty's around. We know him from back in the day. Let's take him on the road. Or yeah, um, we had all kind of spent time living together. Uh, Matt was living out in California already. So um, when he came back, he had an apartment that was above mine at the time, and I lived with uh, our buddy Dave. And then my brother was living up there for a little bit. And oh, then wow. when Derek joined the band, uh, they were still practicing in Chicago because Danny still lived in Chicago. Mm. And uh, Derek slept on the couch for a while. And nice. so we were, we were, we were super tight. Um, and so Keith, uh, who was the drum tech before me, um, had, had moved on. And, uh, and so I kind of hit them up and, and, you know, asked if I could, if I could, jump in what was the first run you did with them um it was a headlining run uh on the west coast i remember uh we started uh i can't remember started in like san francisco okay yeah was like being around trio like early on and stuff was it one of those bands that when they like formed and got established and playing around that it was sort of an automatic like you know something special going on here or did it did it take a little while for them to to get their footing and people to realize like what was what was the beginning of trio like they 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 got off to a pretty good start yeah um yeah yeah because they had uh it was a different lineup at, at first it was it was obviously matt and then um a different bass player and different drummer. Right. And then Danny joined, uh, for the first full length and, uh, Glenn was still drumming for two full lengths. Okay. And then, and then, you know, they kind of Asian man picked him up because Danny was in slapstick with my brother. Yes. Um, and so they were already on Asian man. So I think they got, they had a good jump start, and their songs. I mean, their songs are so catchy. Yeah, yeah, so hooky, and they were such a they were such a fun band live when they were when they were super young too because it was right. just it was just debauchery on stage. You yeah, know? and Skiba was like, <laughs> yeah, he was like eighteen when they started, right? Um, or like very young. Yeah, he was young. He was definitely over twenty one uh, when Trio started. When I met him, he was he was eighteen. Okay, he was in a band called Jerkwater. Was it Jerkwater? Yeah, nice. He played drums. <laughs> Ian and I were talking before on text a little about how, you know, Skiba's like 
to us one of the last true like rock stars you know like to me like he's one of those people who walks into a room and just has this like you just kind of notice him he has that like presence he's like one of those people um did did you pick up on that and or did you just know him too well and like did you see people kind of react like really strangely around him eventually? Uh, I don't think people ever acted strangely around him because he never acted strangely around other people. Yeah, that's true. I think, um, but he definitely like the charisma you're talking about is hundred percent there. It always was. Yeah. Yeah. Like even when you met him when he was young, you're just like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's got something, something going on there. I got him his first fake ID. <laughs> really? Where was that? <laughs> it was my buddy Alan, who was who was my age, so a couple years older. Yeah. Um, he they just could pass for one another, so Alan just got a duplicate. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Good job we haven't set a sting operation up on this call. Oh. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> got to get those peg boy guys back. Yeah, <laughs> sitting on the roof right now. So this is a good time to bring up a uh, a little segment on the friend called Mystery Friend. Who did you kiss on? So I went ahead and spoke to one of your very old friends and mm-hmm. got an old story. So I'd like you to tell me a little bit about <laughs> this story, what the uh, context was, and then you have to guess which friend told me, okay? Oh, you really did research. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Scotty, I love you. You know? I love go it. all the way. Um, so I heard when you were a young, a young man, about 17 or so, you were uh, doing acid <laughs> at a guy named Jed Babbitt's house. Right. Had a couple girls over. <laughs> it was extremely awkward. Uh, and the older brothers came home and played you Smashing Pumpkins and vibed out your acid trip super good. Do you remember this? Well, I wasn't the one doing acid. You didn't do acid. Oh, you well, were watching people do acid. So Jed uh-huh. Babbitt that you're speaking of. Great name, by he, the way. He was 17. Oh, okay. His older brother and I, John... Had gone to see Smashing Pumpkins. Okay, okay. This story, so we, this story's a little different. Okay, we went to see Smashing Pumpkins at Metro. Uh huh. And I mean, Ooh, maybe that's a cool show. Wow. I was going to ask if you'd seen Smashing Pumpkins back in the day. What year was that? That would have been early '90s. So yeah, we definitely saw them. Like when they when when they were still like pushing Gish. Like you could see them at Metro for seven bucks and just wait in line and. It wasn't even sold out. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Yes, yeah, we, we used to see him a lot. So I'm playing Tower Records, like doing acoustic thing for uh, when they released the set. Um, what's it called? That Siamese Daydream, the second album? Siamese Dream, yeah. Siamese Dream. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Is it, but yeah, it? so we, yeah. we went home. We, we went back to John and Jed's house, well, their mom's house. And Jed was there with, with uh, a young lady. Is it possible that you were on acid and you believed that you were at a Smashing Pumpkins concert <laughs> and that you had never left anything's, the house? Anything's possible. Yeah. <laughs> so you've never done acid. 
Oh no, I'm not saying that at all. Oh. Just not that that <laughs> that day. <laughs> Particular evening. I was kind of the funny thing was when you asked me to do this, I was kind of I was you know, I was hesitant at first. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not some some rock guy. Um but I was just kind of thinking of some funny stories that have happened along the the years and so there's too many that <laughs> happened around acid. <laughs> oh, man, I didn't know this about you, Scotty. I didn't know you had an acid run. It wasn't like a run. It was just it was just, you know, it popped up every now and then. I mean, more than a few times I'd consider it a run. Did you ever uh did you ever like see I've still yet to try it, Scotty. Like after all these years, I was Dude. scared away from it early on for I think very valid reasons. But now I'm like yeah. starting to get to that point where I'm like, you know what? Like, let's open these doors. I'm ready. You know, like, I want to I want to see what's back here. I uh, mean, they're doing all the tests on it now that, like, you know, it's supposed to help you with all kinds of things. Yeah. Did you ever find that it, like, took you somewhere you actually, like, really needed to go? No. 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 <laughs> we just, it, just got us, it just got us in trouble. <clears throat> and, uh, I mean, I can't imagine doing it. It's been decades yeah. at this point since I've... Uh, done that but i can't even imagine doing it now have you ever been arrested uh no oh all that time i've never been arrested i've uh been handcuffed okay uh by the police but i've never been uh, i've never been arrested i like that you had to specify by the police <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i've been handcuffed yeah. i know where your mind is wandering <laughs> i've been handcuffed by a number of people police being one of them Listen, Scott. We're on duty. You have a. You've always had a terrific body. I've always wondered, <laughs> with that body, with that hair, oh, what was man. going on at night when I fell asleep. I always thought you could have been getting into some sexual Fight Club type of stuff. Just saying. What's your secret, Scotty? Because yeah. you are. If I think of like, like just all the older acid. people, stop doing acid or do it. Just do loads. Do loads of acid, and I could look like you. I do would it. be drinking bottles of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got to tell us, Scotty. Like you're, you look great. You've always looked great. What's the trick? What's the physical trick? What are you doing? It's just mom and dad. I got lucky. <laughs> Pure genetics. Pure genetics. So there's nothing we can do at all to yeah. for me and Benny, Ian who are and like I, big yeah. boys, six hundred fifty pounds of slovenly mess over here. <laughs> oh my gosh, we've got beautiful. no chance. <laughs> Ian, it was genetics the whole time. You're people both were, beautiful uh, humans. People were telling us it was like nutrition. I know. So me and you Working were feeling out. guilty about our snack bags and shit. And it was just I know. our parents. Oh, you got a snack. Just Should have had different parents. <laughs> Could have been beautiful like Scotty. <laughs> Speaking of tours and snack bags, I, I guess people don't know what that is. Ian Perkins famously at any gas station or rest area U.S., Europe, he's usually feeling gregarious and will come back into the van with something he calls a snack bag. It's <laughs> filled with like, I don't even know where you get the money from, 20 to 30 euros or dollars worth of treats. And, and then I was you, selling acid to Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't help but like, you know, Scotty, how many times did you get roped into a snack bag? Where, come on. Come on, come on. You oh, have to eat. All the time. Yeah, terrible for me. But speaking of touring, one of the things I always 
noticed about you, Scotty, was I really, I really love the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and well, mm-hmm. what I understand of it anyway, which is probably like a third of it. Um, but there's one thing that always stands out in that book. There's like a principle that divides people, and they use the example of a, a dripping faucet, and that there are some people who cannot rest and cannot be okay with the things going on until they fix this faucet, right? Until, mm-hmm. uh, like, they can't rest until. And then there's another type of person who will just get accustomed to the leak and and move on with their life. And that's this is a variation between two people. I've noticed something similar in touring with what people do on the first day of their bunk dictates kind of, <laughs> kind of like the person they are, like, as a whole. You know, it's like a giant reflection. And Scotty, you'll walk in to a bus first day, string up some lights, put a fan in, get like a little workstation set up, a little, uh, um, you know, like it's just very clean, very organized and put together. Even think you'd sometimes get your own sheets and pillows. And then there are others who like, you know, toss a backpack in there and just basically wallow in their own filth for like a month. Um, me, that's me. Nah, you know, I was thinking about it. I think Ian, you and I both are a little bit in the middle. I would say, because even though you spend a lot of time in there, an unusual amount of time in there, uh, it never stunk. <laughs> you know, it never was stinky. No, 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 no. You never we didn't had, go like, over to that. Yeah, like across the way from you, you know, there was shit pouring out of it, <laughs> and it just like a general musk. You know, that like, like <laughs> what is even happening in there? So. <laughs> What what is it about like you as a person like uh that that you need to set up this station and get comfortable and and need that kind of order to touring in order to in order to be happy? Like is that something that you found you need when you when you hit the road? Yeah, it was it it's always been like that though, you know, and I think maybe it stems back to all the time and months and months and months spent in you know, a van where you, you kind of deck the van out to, to be, to be comfortable, you know, and to be, to be a home away from home. And when, when we started touring in buses and we used to have fun, like on the trio bus, we said, you were on when we had the Halloween decorations that one. Year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we'd always, we'd, you know, you'd make that late night stop somewhere and you'd, you'd go in and you usually had a few cocktails in you and, and you'd spend a bunch of money at Walmart on, on, stupid crap to decorate your bunk and it just stuck i love doing it i love doing it (laughs) and you do you think that like my theory after all the touring you've done and stuff do you think my theory is is somewhat true that the way someone sets it up can kind of be like a marker of their personality on a bigger level absolutely yeah absolutely yeah so judge judge ian and i (laughs) you guys are both clean we're pretty we're not so bad right yeah i think you could be clean though and not be that guy I wouldn't say I, I have a, a great example of, of Scotty with me and little Alex got on the bus first day and we're sitting there late at night. No one's up and we're in the front lounge and all these bottles are banging into each other. And we, me and him are laughing and we're literally having a conversation talking about how there's two different people, the people that will get up and sort something out 
and the people that would just learn to deal with whatever the problem is. Right, yeah. And we were laughing. Every time these bottles were smashing together, we're just laughing every time and not moving. And Scotty walks in, literally 10 seconds after his walk, he's like, how the fuck are you sitting here listening to this? And reorganized all the bottles instantly, which was hilarious to us. But that's the kind of person Scotty is. Yeah. And the difference between someone like myself, where I can just, I can literally learn to live with anything, noise, whatever it is, I'll just deal with it. It's true. And I feel like you're the, the kind of people, I would put you in there, Benny, that you're just like, I cannot live with this. Oh, yeah. I have no... to make this right. Yeah. Yeah, Benny, you're, you're, you're a super organized guy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, there's no chance I'd let those bottles clang around. Yeah. Yeah. No, it'd drive me fucking crazy. They were clanging and we were laughing. Oh, it's fucking funny, man. I love that shit. But yeah, like it's so funny because I always remember with you as far as being like an incredibly adaptive. I, I think I envied you both, you know, because like in a way I always wished I'm like, fuck, like I wish I was as organized as Scotty. Like, look at his bunk. That must be great to just live in there for a month. But there's no way I'm buying a mini fan, you know, like I'm just not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but then you, Ian, I always remember airplanes with you. And you were always like, I almost like didn't believe you at first when you were like, yeah, I don't give a fuck. And I'm like, how does this guy who's like nearly six foot five, you know what I mean? Like doesn't drink, is not going to get on this plane and get hammered or anything. How is he actually okay with a middle seat going to Australia or something? Like, like this isn't possible that he's okay. He's faking it. <laughs> And then You've like no after, choice. Yeah. And then after like, you know, months and months of knowing you, I'm like, wow, he really doesn't care. How? You can't care. You can't care. How do you or, let or it go, his... Ian? How do you let that You're go? like a magical creature that way though. Yeah. No, but you I you really you drive are. yourself crazy because I'm not I'm not that kind of guy like Scotty where he'll reorganize the whole it'll reorganize the whole plane this you have these drinks you can do this you sit there you don't you two shouldn't sit next to each other i'm just like this is my seat i gotta be on this for 22 hours let's just let's just roll with it and have a laugh i mean i envy you some memonyms yeah but that's why you gotta have the snack bag if if i'm hungry if i'm hungry then it's a whole nother nah i can't do it uh Oh, wait, Scotty, we missed something. We did this mystery friend segment with the acid story, and you never guessed oh, your yeah. friend. So who do you think told me this incorrect story about doing acid at Jed Babbitt's house? <laughs> John Babbitt? No. I, how the fuck would I get in touch with John Babbitt, <laughs> Scotty? No, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, oh, wait, 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 wait. Danny Andriano. Yes. All right. Oh my god! Oh my god! Now I'm reading it back, and I realize I fucked it up. Oh, did you? Yeah. This is it in quotes. He said once when I was like 17 or so, I was doing acid at a friend named Jed Babbitt's house. Uh, oh, that's right. Danny was there. So Danny was doing acid at Jed Babbitt's house and told me this story. Oh, okay. This is my fault altogether. Jeez. I'm sorry. <laughs> Did I say that right? That's funny that that story came up. So, Scotty, now you told me a story earlier today that kind of fascinated me and leads me into, you know, what you're doing these days. Um, can you tell me a little about the, you know, the amphitheater you work at 
and the um, <laughs> what happened post nine eleven and how it came to be because that was pretty fascinating. <laughs> and so I, I'm a production manager for a, a venue in Chicago, uh, and it's on a little plot of land called Northerly Island, which at one point was Miggs Field, which was a tiny privately run airport on the south side of Chicago, like literally just outside the city limits. It's right across from um, Soldier Field. Okay. So it's still city limits, just out of the downtown, you know, skyscraper area. Um, but uh, yeah, so after 9-11 happened, um, every, you know, every mayor in the country was so paranoid about their city being attacked Right. that uh, this little runway seemed like a, a target. So in the cover of night, um, Mayor Daly, who was the mayor at the time, had uh, some guys go out there with large machinery and just carve giant X's into the runway. So it was... <laughs> <laughs> it's not wasn't usable anymore. So unlandable, it's unlandable. So now it's been turned into a park. Uh, it's a city. It's a city park. It's owned by the city. But uh, every summer now we build a we build a stage out there, and uh, it's a it's a stagecoach stage, and it's big steel structure, and it goes up every year, and and uh, we put up grandstands and all that every year. And, uh, it's, it's a beautiful spot because on, on one side, on the east side of the venue. So if you're on stage, if you're on stage, looking to your left, it's, it's 13th street beach and, and Lake Michigan. And then on the stage right side is soldier field and there's Marina in between okay. soldier field and the Island. And then behind the stage, kind of like the backdrop of the stage is, is the skyline. So it's a, it's a beautiful spot. Hmm. Uh, like so, what was what was it like for you making that transfer to these? Because you work all over the Midwest in these different places. Um, yeah, you know w- when you're going from the Fireside Bowl and the punk scene and Chicago <laughs> shows, and then within you know the same lifetime, you're you're producing like stadium events and stuff. Um, like as far as the music is concerned, and like the consumers, like you know, a connection to the music. What do you think at this point it takes for one of these like big amphitheater stadium shows to actually like connect with people the same way, like a club show could do, or is it even possible? Um, I think that, I think the people are looking for, for something different, a different kind of connection. I think when, when you, when you're at like a stadium event like that, I mean, no one these days, no one, watches the the actual stage and he's looking at the the massive video walls or right. they're staring at, at their phone because they're they're videotaping it so they can right. post it somewhere but i th- i think you know the that punk rock energy that'll never it can't happen in that in that environment like the bands don't put it off right right you know what i mean and the and the have you ever seen coldplay yeah there you go. They pull it off. <laughs> they do a pretty good job of it. <laughs> so who do you, yeah, who like out, out of all the bands you've seen uh, through these years, like who do you think did the best job of uh, creating a really, really great like large scale show and like what were kind of some of the tricks that, that maybe made it happen like that? Uh, you choose definitely um, the 
the best at it. Oh, really? You know, at at the stadium shows, I I think, in my personal opinion, what makes them um, the best at it? They just always have something just beyond creative as far as like a stage design, and mm. and and I mean, they're all just so good at what they do. And the music's I, I've always loved you too, like since I was in high school. Like yeah. I've always been a U two fan. Um. I would say they wrote the book, wouldn't you? On, on, on like the, that kind of show. Yeah. What about Rush? Modern day. Rush? No, no, like modern day, like oh, a Rush modern day, like stadium show. Yeah. If you're looking at who set the bar, you two, all, every record. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. I mean, and for, and then the way they present, the way they present it is just, it's, I mean, no one else can afford it to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's so expensive, like what they, what they do. But then you got, um, you know, Pearl Jam's like Pearl Jam's a great example because I did not like Pearl Jam at all when I was younger when they right. came out. Yeah. I just thought that was crap. <laughs> um, but now I, I love them. Like I think they're I think they're great. I like their I like all their albums. Even even the stuff that I thought was crap when I was younger. Okay. Um, but that that touches on like another. And I actually heard you. Uh, I was listening to Maddie um, and Dave Haas. Uh, show you did right and that kind of touches on that subject of when you're punk rock you know you can't like certain things (laughs) yeah right you know what i mean pearl um, Pearl jam is off limits yeah i think so yeah i had like a 10-year break on pearl jam from like 14 to 24 and then i was like okay i can like them again and they're great and they 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 deliver that kind of energy right you know in 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 the same way but What's the like? What's the largest production that that ever showed up? Like, YouTube. What What is it like? How many trucks? Like, how many people? Is it just like a village? Yeah. So that the YouTube show when they did the I don't know if you've ever seen pictures. It was the three hundred and sixty tour. They yeah, did it. Right. They did two world tours of it. They they split them up because um, like there was a back injury or something like that. Um, but they had that claw. You know, right? Yeah, and that thing was like, I mean, that show. I want to say it was over. I think it was over fifty steel trucks. Holy shit! And and then like thirty or forty production trucks. Oh my god! It was just mental. You know, it's just so big. And then the way they, and then it was plopped in the middle of a field. And they had to buy every every stadium they went to. They had to buy all that grass because it was oh, never coming back. Get the, you know, the, the weight of, of that thing. So, Whoa. yeah, I mean that that show is just incredible. What's that cost you? Like buying? <laughs> well, yeah, what's it like? I show up to Soldier Field. I'm like, I want to fuck up the grass tonight. How much is it going to cost mean, me? Like, I mean, it would, it would have to be half a million three quarters of a million wouldn't you think yeah because it's probably the highest quality grass like you're going to take two two. (laughs) beautiful sod farm that's insane how many trucks it is and stuff that's wild and how many yeah how many people do you think are part of the well you probably know like how many people are part of that production hundreds yeah it's like a so this really is like you know now that you're on this side of the business and we were dealing with, you know, COVID, I, you know, I even talked to a friend the other day where I, you know, I was realizing, you know, I think at first, when we first started the pandemic, I was sort of in the mindset that people who were saying that art and music and things like this are vital 
you know, vital things to society. I, I think I brushed it off a little because in a way I was like, this is not life or death. Like, like it doesn't matter. But then like, as the time went on and I could see really like what I was missing, um, what, uh, it provides for other people. Like, do you think that, uh, the entire industry, not just from a creative and consumer end, but also from like the business end, like a band like you two literally employing just like hundreds of people and all these production companies and people like you who rely on them to come there. Like, um, like, do you think these businesses should have been considered more vital from the start and more subsidized as we went through this? Absolutely. I think the U S probably did the least, um, in, in terms of like, you know, who we consider, you know, our, our, our friends and, and where these other bands are coming from, like UK and, and European countries set up much larger grants for people that were, uh, you know, in the arts and, and trying to, you know, keep them on some sort of livable, livable wage. And, you know, it's, our unemployment has gone up in this country, but it's still not the same, but it, it, it took the bands themselves doing it. Mm. You know, where a lot of, you'll see a lot of bands now that were supposed to tour last year um, where they, you know, they came out with a, a special hoodie, you know, right, that yeah. you can buy and all the money for the hoodie goes towards their, their crew. Even like, you know, like friends of ours, like rising and sure. you know, yeah. stuff like that. But, um, and then, you know, I've seen other bands like Foo Fighters they have, they're so, they're such a poster driven band, mm. you know, like everybody collects Foo Fighters posters. And so <laughs> right, right. they had, they had a different poster made for their whole, uh, their whole tour that was canceled. But instead of those posters just getting scrapped, they, they auctioned them off. And like, I've, I have a friend that actually made the one for Minneapolis and he put it up on his site and everything. And so the and Foo Fighters were advertising it. So it just instead of the government helping uh, or, or or making making people more aware of it, it just took it just took the artists to do it, you know. Yeah, and and or, or things like Crew Nation and, and things right, like that. Right. Yeah, it's so crazy, man. That just it's not considered. Uh... Yeah, I don't know. It's even something as simple as like just getting together for band practice, human interaction. You know, it's just like it, yeah. it pays so much dividends. It's really, it's really wild, man. Um, yeah, it's been so. Weird what, what do you think? Uh, you know, in your expertise now, like, what do you think this is all going to look like moving forward? Like, um, are we looking at just exactly what it was a couple years ago, or what do you think are going to be like the permanent changes to to these industries? It's hard to say, you know, like, I, I guess a lot will depend on what, what happens with, you know, the, the idea of like a vaccine passport or, or, you know, if people, you know, people still got to twist people's arm to get a vaccine. Right. But, um, I think this summer will be, um, we'll start to see some stuff. I think the, the bummer is it's going to be, it's going to be the, the independent clubs and the indoor spots, you know, like a little, you know, Metro where you only got, you know, a thousand, 1100 people in there, but they're packed, you know, shoulder to shoulder. There's no way to socially distance that where, you know, in an arena or something, you can, you can scatter people. Yeah. Right. So I think I, I'm optimistic. I think 
the, the summer will be, you know, we'll see some outside stuff. Um, I think, you know, hopefully uh, once fall rolls around that things are a bit more controlled and you start to see some, some clubs open up again and it's going to be it's state by state, I guess, but it's funny because, you know, like certain States were pushing for everything to open and to have shows, but you, you, we all know you can't do a, you can't do a tour in Texas. You can, you can play a lot of shows in Texas, <laughs> right. but you can't, you can't do a tour in Texas. Yeah, sure. So, you know, and most punk bands aren't going to make much money down there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the old Texas punk rock market, all four of yeah. you. When New York goes, what, July 1st, 100% open? Yeah, they're going for it. We'll see. Yeah, yeah I mean... The, and Chicago's got the same politics as New York pretty much, so I, right. I think it won't be long. I think we're doing July 4th. Yeah, stadiums so. are going for it, half capacity soon. You know, we'll... Uh, yeah. Hope it works out, right? So before I let you guys go, the two of you, I need to do something combined, okay? And I know you might have to fight a little about it. I won't fight Scotty. He's too too muscly. (laughs) It's true. He probably knows some weird, like, MMA moves, you know? You just lock up your leg and you'd be fucked. He'd probably just tickle you. (laughs) He'd tickle you into submission because he's so nice. You're the tickle monster. No, but he's 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 got oh. that beautiful body. I don't know. I just can't <laughs> take that on. All right. Before this gets too overtly sexual, I'd like the two of you to please rank the three best Fugazi albums in history. Oh boy. Oh, can I just can I say one thing before? Yes. That one of my favorite memories all time when I think of Scotty is <laughs> when we first were working together, we would have Fugazi Fridays. Fugazi Fridays. Every, every Friday, we would only listen to Fugazi oh, every Friday. I don't remember that. And it's one of my, when I think Scotty, if someone's like, what kind of a guy is Scotty? I'm like, he's a beautiful man, beautiful body, Fugazi <laughs> Friday. <laughs> I think uh, Ian just wrote your uh, epitaph, Scotty. <laughs> beautiful man, beautiful body, Fugazi Fridays. I've probably listened to Fugazi more with Scotty than any other person. We've listened to every record, every second of every record together, 100%. And you are the two perfect people to answer this question. So I not only <laughs> want the top three, I'd like them in order, please. Oh, God, don't make us pick. I know, I know my top one for sure is in on the Kill Taker. Oh, no. Ian, not, is, no? That, is, in on See, the, I, is that even in your top three? I would go, I like the later records more than like, ah, uh, end hits would be my favorite, I think. And I know it's not like many people's, but I, like I would it. say, uh, I just think it sounds better, but I don't know. Don't make us pick. It's like saying, pick your favorite kids, I think. Yeah. If I had kids, which is super I don't know. easy. <laughs> is it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some, no. some kids are assholes, you know, and some kids aren't. Some Fugazi <laughs> records are better than other ones. What is this? Ooh. Come on, give me a top three. Top Oh, God. Well, no, I can't. I can't. <laughs> we listen to every, the, every second of every record. I can tell you, I can speak for both of us that we love Every second, there's not. I think it's, there's not many bands that you could say that about. Man, you know what I mean. I really needed it's one true. of you guys to be more controversial. You know, I'm <laughs> oh, definitely sticking with "In on a Kill Taker" for number one. I would probably say "Steady a Diet." 
Mm. Number two. Ooh, yeah. And I like I like end hits too. But I really like red medicine. Oh yeah, red Oh medicine. red medicine's got you can't you can't pick three then. So those would be right smack dab in the middle of those three. <laughs> well, what if I pick one, end hits, you pick one, mm. and then we'll pick one together, red medicine. There you go. Top three. So we got end hits, in on a kill taker, red medicine. Oh, that's such a tough. I love that you guys are leaving out 13 songs. And I love that you're leaving out the argument because I'd assume those are probably the two most picked albums. I'll tell you. the You think the argument's the most picked? I think it's, yeah. I hated hated it. When I first heard it, I'll tell you right now. I was like, what the fuck is this? And then I was supposed to see them, and it got cancelled in London. And by the time the show was rescheduled, I was like, "This is the best record I've ever heard in my life." I, I completely didn't get it at the beginning, yeah. and I feel like there's a lot of records like that where you like, "What?" Well, that goes into a whole another thing sure. of instant music that's like all out now. Do you know what I mean? I just don't think there's much mu- music coming out like that now, where you're like, "I'm gonna have to sit on this for a couple of months." Yeah, and like, right. Here at the right time, but yeah, that record. Oh, because that's the them, energy, that's the live energy you want to capture. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's untouchable. Did you ever see Fugazi in Chicago back yeah. in the day? Sure. Oh, you just say sure yeah. like it's like no big deal. <laughs> scoop of chocolate, scoop of vanilla. No, don't waste yeah. my time. <laughs> we uh, there's um one show. It was at an old. Uh, it was an abandoned roller rink called Rainbow Roller Rink. And um, they played there. And here, this will just be another good guy story. So they played there. We were all broke. And a handful of us volunteered to work the show, right? So we were just kind of just doing whatever you need to do. It wasn't like security or anything like that. But um, the guy that put on the show, do you guys, have you guys ever seen that? There's a split seven inch and it's, Jawbreaker, or sorry, Jawbox and Tar. And they each have a song called Static, but on the 7-inch, they cover each other's song, Static. Hmm. Okay. So there's a man on that cover. His name's Bernie, and he's the one that put on the show in Chicago. And I guess he was just a personal friend. And uh, so we all volunteered to work the show so we could go see it. It was Fugazi and the Makeup. Ooh. And this is a roller rink. And uh, could you roll a skate? At no. The, at the show? <laughs> Oh, no. I thought you were asking if I could roller skate. I'm shocked that you don't have roller skate. <laughs> yeah, we know you can roller skate. We, you can do everything. <laughs> but just at the show, that would have been cool. That would have been cool. <laughs> but months later, I was at Metro, and we were playing a late show. And Bernie was there for the early show. And I, I didn't know this man at all. Like, Brian knew him. That's how I got hooked up to work the, the Fugazi show. So he sees me and he, he recognizes me and he reaches into his pocket and I can't remember how much he pulled out. It was like 20, 30 bucks and he hands it to me. And he said, the guys from the band wanted me to find everybody that volunteered for that Fugazi show somehow and just give him some cash. <laughs> so I was like, wow. All right. <laughs> so you got paid to go to the show. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how was the show though? Amazing. They were great. Oh, the last thing I, I like to ask people right now is like, you know, uh, you know, some people are struggling day to day. What's the kind of stuff 
that you're using on a day-to-day basis to kind of stay sane? And uh, are there any music or books or podcasts that you could recommend to the people? I, I take a lot of walks. Nice. <laughs> right now. So we moved, when we, when we moved uh, back from Manchester, um, we, we bought a house, but we're way out in the sticks now. We're like way out of the city. Okay. So um, there's lots of walking paths. So yeah, I, I take long, long walks <laughs> a lot um, to stay sane. Podcasts. I'm into like, I listen to a lot of like conspiracy theory podcasts because I just am, I'm fascinated by how people get sucked into things. Like when I read books, I don't really read fiction very often. Mm-hmm. I like nonfiction and I like it about people that are just kind of that get into weird shit. <laughs> That's cool. Like I, I love, I love people that for some reason just like, man, and during the pandemic, this whole, the, the QAnon thing, Right. Has been so magnificent to, to read about and to listen to podcasts about because that shit is just bananas. Yeah. No, it's insane. It's so, so bananas. But um, yeah, uh, I don't know. We, we kind of have a nice routine. Beck's still working. So spend some time with the dog and go for walks and we watch, you know, watch something after dinner. And just try and keep ahead up straight. Love it. All right, yeah. Scotty. Well, thanks for uh, doing this with me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Was, it was fun. I, man. I appreciate that. I'm still here. Yo, I love you. Thanks for doing this. Love, yeah, I love. love you guys, man. I love I you guys. guys love, love, love. Love, love. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Brad. Man, did you ever <laughs> see uh, like Smashing Pumpkins and a weird... Little, oh my gosh! No, I did not ever see Smashing Pumpkins. But you know, I w- I was wondering, like, if I ever w- when was Scotty there, like at Fireside, working there? Do you think? I think like like mid to late nineties. Because like I di- I was going to bring it up, but there was enough people talking, and I couldn't remember. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I played Fireside ninety six, ninety seven, ninety eight. Ah, three years running. Ninety six is with the Souls. Uh-huh. 97 was with, we were on tour with 22 Jacks. Oh, nice. And actually, I think Lunachicks played that night, too. Cool. And then a 98, I don't remember. I think it was just an off night blown through. What a great venue. I mean, it's like one of the... So cool. So yeah, cool. Like, like, it's hard to describe. I mean, for people from New Jersey, we got a little bit of a taste with the original Asbury Lanes. Um, you know, not the one we have now. Uh, which, you know, the locals hate, I don't mind, but like places like that, just, I mean, fuck, not only do they not exist anymore, but as per this conversation we just had, like, fuck, how hard is it going to be for places like this to survive now or, or the ones that did survive? It's really like something this conversation did to me and like, you know, going into it is like. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I've been naive to it this whole time or something, but I, I really am like stunned at this point at the uh, the lack of commitment to the arts. It just right. feels so crazy now that I see how much money went to so many different places, the people who needed it, and just these like 
real serious gear functions of how people survive and how people find joy and how people make their livings and how just that wasn't considered vital. It's just such a, it's another, another stain among many stains of this whole thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, it, it made me laugh cause I, you know, it, it always makes me think of Van Halen and their brown M&M story, you know, <laughs> I like, they just like snuck that into the middle of the contract to make sure that yeah. people were reading their technical specs. And yeah. <laughs> when I hear about you two showing up with like, fuck, like a hundred trucks, you know, like how many buses, like that is like an industry. It's like its own, it's its own industry, you know? Like, oh yeah. No, it's a small town there. You I mean, two definitely a small industry. Yeah, for real, I'm sure. I hung out with um U2's uh like engineer, like Bono's like vocal engineer um one time and he told me this hilarious story about um I guess the Edge has this huge pedal board. <laughs> I'd imagine, yeah. Yeah, as you would think. But <laughs> and I don't even know how this as a technical guy, I don't know how this is possible, but there's an exact replica of it just off stage. And his okay. guitar tech stands over it for the whole show so that if Edge cannot, you know, because he changes stuff so often. Yeah. If he can't make it back to the pedal board, like the tech will change, make the change for him. But I guess he's like always fucking with him. Like he'll lift his foot like over a pedal, like right before the part and then like not stomp it just to like fuck with his tech and it's just like like knowing like th how massive their show is and yeah, how right. kind of important and i mean i like you too but like let's face it a lot of the edges sound comes from those fucking pedals sure <laughs> you know I, what i mean and, like yeah, yeah. it's just well, hilarious yeah. that that's what he would choose to fuck around with like the thing that might actually really make a difference to his sound but yeah i mean so are you are you one of those like from a drummer's perspective, right? I always watch, I watched that one, I forget the documentary, but the one that was like uh, Jimmy Page, yeah. Jack White, and the that's, Edge. Yeah, that's where, a like, good Jimmy Page and Jack White are basically just destroying playing him out the whole yeah. fucking time. Just like, yeah, 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 you're not a guitar player. Like, we are. Enjoy he, your toys. He or couldn't whatever. really keep up with them, dude. Like, I mean, I but mean, that's was... where, but, but, do we consider like I've seen people do amazing stuff with that technology and to say that part of it is not a skill. No, no, it's like, a, like it's a actual, very different yeah, the manipulation of these things. Yeah. It kind of wasn't fair. I even I realized I that when I was watching it. Was it. Fair. Yeah. Like, yeah. and, and then, you know, from a drummer's perspective, when I'm like writing songs from a rhythmic perspective, Nine times out of ten, I'd rather you motherfuckers play a beautiful note, let it hang over four bars with some fucking pedals on right. it, instead of noodling <laughs> all over this beautiful fucking part. Yeah, yeah. You know? So no, like, I, it's funny you bring that up because I, as I was watching that, I remember thinking like, yeah, this is not really fair. This would be like me trying to sit in with a couple of like you know like classical guitar players or like jazz guy, like jazz guitar jazz players play these chords that I don't even know what they are. Like, right. I don't even, yeah. I wouldn't even know how to play them. And that's like, kind yeah. of what was happening there. It was exactly. like, these are two blues based dudes. Like, right. And like, he just, yeah, he was lost, but it's like, it was good though. That's a good, um, I, I enjoyed that little, what was that? Like Netflix or something. 
Yeah, I forget what it was. It was really interesting, though. Yeah, it's like me sitting in a room with like Terry Bazio and being like, hey, you like, uh, dig like the new ISIS record? You know, you want to get stoned and just play super slow with me, Terry? Yeah, just, I don't know. Different vibe. And, and I mean, as a guitar player, like who else was doing, like, like, who who was doing in mainstream what the edge was doing like robert smith like the cure kind of stuff like like was oh, there not any really any Ed, precedent for it beforehand? no he kind of really did invent yeah. um he was he was not even a guitar i mean i keep he was he is i mean his thing is more like almost i hate to use this word it's so overused but it's more like sound design almost yeah. than than guitar playing and um and yeah, I I read a thing once where who was was it Lenoir or whoever the producer they used to use a lot was talking about their whole thing was to make a vibe to make like like they would just jam on things for hours until they kind of until everybody was playing something that just created like this incredible ambience and then they would write a song around it mm. and it really makes sense because. Yeah, it's not, their stuff doesn't sound, whether you love them or hate them, like, there's not really anybody that gets that, that sound or that, that real, that like kind of presence, that vibe as, as U2 does. Totally. And understood that thing about, you know, about the show, you yeah. know, that's like, uh, you know, I've had that conversation with a lot of people over the years, like what, once you get to a certain size, once you start charging certain amount for tickets, what is your responsibility as far as putting on a show is concerned? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like seriously, like if you're yeah, yeah. getting to like a stadium level and you're charging $50 for your show and just four bozos get up there in their jeans and <laughs> rip of the hour and a half of songs. Like, I know it's cool and it'll sound good, but are they doing like the whole thing a disservice? Like once you get to that right. point, do you have a responsibility to like give a little bit of a show? Oh yeah. They, they try to bring this show. And I yeah. saw them play the zoo TV tour with Primus opening. And you know, this was back when I was full on like unapologetic punk rocker. Right. So I thought that the stage overwhelmed them. You know, it was really, they had a lot going on on that stage. Mm. But in the middle of the show, they came out and did the, and this was one of the first times I had seen this. Everybody does it now, but where they came out and did kind of an acoustic set in the right. middle of the audience. Right, right, right. And that was mesmerizing. Yes. I think Lou Reed came and like did a song yeah. with them. Um, and that was when I was like, oh my God, like I was, that was really engaging. And um, I talked to somebody else who was like a fan of you two who said that that tour kind of like that it was a little overblown and they realized <laughs> afterwards that maybe the stage had overwhelmed them and they and I think they figured out after that how to how to bring it closer to the audience. I mean, um, I think crazy. it's rad. Maybe it's because my first big show ever was seeing Rush. You know, <laughs> yeah. so I'm into the lights. I'm into the. Oh know, yeah, I think you should bring quality. a show. You should bring a show for sure, man. Yeah, for something like that, you know. And even Gaslight ran into it at a certain point. Like we wanted to be 
that band. Like, all right, you're coming, you're coming for these fucking songs. Let's, you know, instead of a stage show, we're going to play 28 songs straight with no encore, you know, like that's how we're going to do it instead. But we even got to a point you're watching videos of it and you're like, I don't know, it looks fucking empty up there. You know, (laughs) like there's only five of us and this stage is huge. Like we kind of look like assholes, you know. Like, should have got a gospel choir, dude. <laughs> I know something. Something. I got to play to with an orchestra once on the uh, wow, on a late really? night show. That was kind of cool. I was terrified. I was like, "Wow, these people are actually really counting," and I'm just <laughs> and I'm just bobbing my head in time. Uh oh. I'm like, they're gonna figure me out. But anyway, uh, I know we we quickly mentioned it in the. Uh, interviews scotty is a fantastic photographer um posts a lot of cool shit about uh you know the work he's doing now and some of the old tours he's got a million great gaslight photos actually most of the ones that uh appear um most of the ones that appear in the gaslight instagram these days are scotty's uh Mm. so everyone should check out um his instagram he's just at scotty anna and then uh course check out the perkins perkins 28 he's on there too one of the finest people i know a couple of the finest people i know yeah you can tell i think i could tell that you are fond of those guys i am i yeah i just want to keep talking to them so (laughs) thanks for uh coming on to the program and listening and uh thanks for listening leave us a review on the apple podcasts used to Mm. be called itunes you can Sexual leave a Benny please. review or whatever you're comfortable with. <laughs> What's a Benny review, Brad? Oh, when I listen to going off track, I go, I go, I go, I, I, I. <laughs> wow. And we're out. <laughs>